how have you been? How are you dealing with uh, with COVID? This is our second podcast recording in lockdown. Um, what's what's been going on with you? Um, it's been up and down. Mm. So Easter was a a few weeks ago. Um, I'm not really sure how long ago it was. I, I'm not great at the, the passage of time at the best of times. Mm. Um, like you know, I you could genuinely to ask me when an event was and I wouldn't know if it was three weeks or six months ago mm-hmm. um, sometimes um, uh, but anyway so yeah uh, Easter was, was a couple of weeks ago um, I took it the week after Easter off from my teaching and uh, getting out of the routine mm, kind of threw me off quite badly mm. and has, has affected my sleep and stuff um, I'm I'm kind of back on track now. I was teaching the last week or two weeks. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, the isolation is kind of starting to get to me a bit. Mm. But I'm here for you. Bill. But I thank you, Edgar. <laughs> um, and likewise, uh, I've started taking longer walks with the dog. Um, so that's nice. Um, there's a river near where I live, so it's like kind of five minutes away down a hill and I go down to the river and let the dog off the leash and she runs around and that's nice and I see Aww. ducks and swans and things um, that's so cute Bill because you know you know of my fondness for for waterfowl uh, no you have a fondness for waterfowl you know the way I like geese oh geese right sorry I didn't I didn't in my yeah. head I, I didn't think that geese were waterfowl you do like geese I don't know if the the listeners know just how much you like geese very possibly not. No, I find geese really entertaining. Um, they're they're both like I think they're quite quite beautiful animals. Like they look really nice, um, but I also admire their kind of take no shit attitude. Mm. I, I find that um, they look both regal and silly at the same time. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting dramatic tension there, isn't there? There is. <laughs> Uh, when Bill was uh, away on his postgrad studies internet, um, he went to York. You've you've said that before. We can say that you've been. Yeah, you you were in you were in York, and there was a heap of geese in in York, and it was very fun, like watching your social media timeline and just it being blasted with geese on a near continuous permanent basis while Bill was away. It was uh, very very entertaining. <laughs> Um, yeah, oh, oh. I I got really into photographing them while I lived there. Oh my god, I was I was looking for stuff to. I haven't done merch in ages because, like I said, I ran out of kind of memes. Geese bill, mm-hmm. geese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isolation. I I've stopped stopped running. I've stopped going outside because like I don't really need to. And I was just like, I, uh, let's be yeah. dil- diligent about this, Edgar. Um, I'm I'm quite fit and stuff, so it's not like I, I really badly need the exercise. So I've decided to just really cocoon. And it's beginning to get a little bit... Uh, it's not great for the old mental health, like, because running really helps clear the mind. No. Um, and now days are blending into one another. They all look the same. It's, it's, a very, it's a very strange time, Bill. And I cannot wait for restrictions to be lifted whenever they may happen. And I can go out for... A Big, long, giganto run all across the city to all the parks. Oh, can't wait. Are you doing anything instead of running? No, 
No. Like, are you doing it? Like, are you doing any like weights or anything? No, I don't do weights, anyways, because weights slow you down. <laughs> uh, no, I'm doing like no exercise, like just nothing, mm-hmm. um, nothing at all. Uh, I'm watching the eating. I'm not, I'm not going mad with the eating or anything. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just I've just defaulted to becoming completely sedentary, um, which is uh, which is a thing. <laughs> it's definitely a thing. Hopefully these restrictions get lifted at some stage, hopefully. But hopefully not too soon as well. Like, hopefully it'll be, you know, at a time where it is actually safe to do so, not just doing so in order to make some imaginary numbers get bigger. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I hope, yeah, at a time when it's safe, but I hope it's not, I hope that time is not in the very distant future because uh, that would, yeah, that would suck so much. I got, actually, I need to backtrack a thing I said last last episode. Remember I talked about how, uh, my perception of the swine flu was so much worse than this. I take that back now. This yeah. is this is going on so long, and it's had such a detrimental effect on health and economics and everything um, that like this is this is this is an entirely new and different beast. And the comparison to swine flu was not apt in in uh, in retrospect. So uh, I just want to mm. strike that one from the record there, Bill. If that's okay. To formally recant your statement. Formally recant. Uh, another thing I want to share, uh, obviously with, you know, lockdown happening, media consumption is true to roof uh, around around the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to shout out a podcast um, that people may be interested in listening to during lockdown. Uh, and that podcast is, oh crap, I forget the name. It's by T.O. Vaughn. I, I call it the T.O. Vaughn podcast, but what the hell is it called? Oh, I need to Google. Crap. <laughs> Apparently, uh, the Artifexian podcast bringing you professionalism since 2015. Oh yeah, uh, 2015, <laughs> man, five years. Good God. Anyway, the podcast no, is called. That, that was a guess, and I think it would be really funny if I actually guessed wrong, and I think that would really reinforce the joke. <laughs> but anyway, go on. Uh, so the podcast is called "This Past Weekend" uh, by a comedian mm-hmm. called Theo Vaughn, and like. I listen to quite a number of comedian podcasts and a lot of them tend to be kind of a lot of comedy. I think these days tends to be uh, uh, at the expense of others. It's kind of like a mean comedy in a way seems Mm. to be a thing. And I find I don't really enjoy that. I don't enjoy laughing at the expense of others. Uh, This guy, this guy, Theo Vaughn, he's a comic from Louisiana and his shtick is all about positivity and like he has he's had like troubles in his life before and he talks a lot about like overcoming them through positive thinking and being positive and he encourages atmospheres of like uh, positive interaction with his, with his with his listeners and things and all of that is kind of set to the backdrop of him telling these crazy imaginary stories of a kind of hyperbolic cajun lifestyle like satirizing a sort of fictional hyperbolic cajun lifestyle and it's just it's so funny uh and it's just it's so uplifting and it's so funny and it's just so wholesome and i think people if if they want something that's really funny but it's not funny at the expense of others and mean and that sort of thing theo is your man he is he's a he's he's great and he's just he's He's bliss. His mind is beautiful to watch. He like he he will react to people so quickly and in an extremely funny, quirky manner that you you kind of left thinking like, how is that brain working in there? What is going on in there? It's just it's glorious. Everyone should go check it out. It's wonderful. Hmm. Okay. 
Cheers. Mm. Um, anywho, so that was uh, that was COVID ca- catharsis, catharsis corner. Uh, should we do some follow? <laughs> uh, let's do some follow up. Okay, so the first thing uh, I have to uh, follow up is that uh, we got suggestions for book club corner or artifacts in book corner. Um, can I just mm-hmm. uh, encourage people again to uh, go to the form? There will be a form in the show notes uh, again this episode. Leave your suggestions in the form because uh, there were people leaving them on Reddit and also via email and in the form and etc. And if it's all all over the place, it's hard to kind of maintain so just if you have a suggestion uh, please do leave it in the form that form is going to be in the show notes uh then the next thing uh, i want to bring up is follow up on the last episode we had this idea of uh, a heavy a heavy volcanism lots of volcanism going on in the setting um that seemed to spark people's interest a lot there's a lot of responses to it uh, so just th- thought i'd bring up a couple of them uh, for the uh original original question asker from the previous show uh we got an email from a chap called will c who recommends the broken earth trilogy by nk jemison and mm-hmm. apparently this idea of like increased volcanism uh, a vol- volcanic centric world is a central part of that story and uh will c recommends it for like uh, a good exploration of how culture will evolve in a volcanically very volcanically active world so just want to flag that go check it out if that's a thing that interests you i i've not read her but she she's won awards all around her as far as far as i remember i mean will C's email uh intrigued me enough that i thought about putting it on the list so will if you want to fill out the form there uh, just to put it all in one database it seems like a really uh good book to review in a book club corner um so possible future uh endeavors there uh, and then we got a, a a bit of feedback from you slash olive you bean which is a wonderful username um and they <laughs> proposed the idea of how plants would deal in a volcanically very active setting and they proposed the idea of like lava seeds that seeds were like resistant to lava so when the when the flows come periodically uh, the the seeds would kind of fall off plants and be carried away by the flow to to germinate uh, somewhere else, and I thought that was really cool. And mm-hmm. then there's lots of speculation in the sub about how then those like very hardy seeds could be used as a form of currency, and if seeds were to be made currency, that might lead to very interesting cultural ideas of economics when the money is just a thing that you will eventually kind of use uh, a thing that can yeah. go in the ground and stuff so there was very interesting speculation happened there and i encourage people to check out the sub for that sure that's cool i like that that last idea about the money particularly i think that was your idea pal <laughs> did i bring it up first i remember discussing it but i don't remember being the first to bring it up oh okay okay maybe maybe it wasn't. <laughs> i am pretty great and narcissistic so it's very possible um and then we got another comment uh, on the Reddit uh, to do with the migration patterns on volcanically active worlds. I, I've i messed up the linking in the show notes here. Again, continuing the theme of professionalism for the Artifacts Team podcast. So I can't, <laughs> I can't name drop you here, but you know who you are. Um, the 
yeah, this person brought up the idea that migration patterns would be hugely affected by volcano increased volcanic activity and that migration will likely be a much smaller endeavor, less expansive endeavor. Uh, migratory groups will likely be much smaller. And then what I found really interesting was like interspecies migration uh, would mm-hmm. be uh, more common. Uh, so to kind of like mitigate disruption. So like if you're a big flock of swallows, for example, and for some reason the path you take is completely disrupted, all those swallows then could break formation in a way and then piggyback on the magpie uh, migration train. And there'd be a lot more kind of freedom uh, in that, um, which I thought was a pretty cool uh, idea. So apologies, uh, poster, for not name dropping you. I'll stick you in the show notes just to, just to credit you. Um, it, so all of you being brought it up uh, as well, but um, mainly the the migration discussion was from Drozenkeep. Drozenkeep. There we go. Thank you, Bill. You rescued that one for me. Sure did. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I like that idea of the, the multiple species uh, migrating in the same groups. That's that's kind of interesting, and that they would have like interspecies socialization. And and I I don't know how applicable this is, but like you, my my brain is going along the lines of what happens if intelligent species evolve f- from those species and evolve in a context of mm-hmm. kind of cooperation like that, and uh, like would xenophobia in on this world be lowered somewhat because you've evolved to like be okay with every sort of animal, um, and yeah, yeah, that could be an interesting thing to explore as well. Or like if just one species um, evolves intelligence um, and they had a sort of a caretaker role over the others so that they were like it was kind of kind of like um, developing agriculture and animal husbandry, but a little bit more holistic. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't think when, when this uh, question came up last show, I didn't think it would go there'd be this much to dig into it. Um, it's amazing mm-hmm. how like someone just goes like, oh, I have a world where there's lots of volcanoes. And you go, that's neat. And then when you really begin to think about it, you're like, wow, actually this changes everything. And it's really fun just uh, mulling it over and listening to people b- bounce around ideas. I had great crack in the subreddit this month. It was a good crack. It was good. It was good. Um, and then finally for, for the emails, uh, it's a bit of a non sequitur, but I thought it might be interesting to bring up. This is an email that's brought to us uh, via Devon Beans. Great name as well. I really, really hope that's your real name. Uh, and they're, uh, We're heavy know, on it, the beans this this episode. We are heavy on the beans. Maybe that's the title. Heavy on the beans. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, like walk a flock is hard in the paint, but it's heavy in the beans. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, Devin Means uh, writes us, uh, wrote us, and uh, basically you asked the idea about like meme culture on a, on a uh, fictional world. Um, would it exist? What would it look like? Um, Etc. I'm fascinated by meme culture, mainly because I kind of don't really understand it. Um, yet I kind of partake in it. Um, so I was interested in hearing what you have to say about it, Bill. Um, would meme culture exist? Yes. Absolutely. Completely, completely undoubtedly. Um, like what we, what we think of it as is a fairly 
modern and fairly recent uh, version of things that we just always do um, mm. as humans and and as a, a social species that communicates. Um, now, ours is kind of quite interesting in that in the last 10 years, self-reference and kind of it, it, like it's super postmodern mm-hmm. and and intertextual and stuff um and maybe that's quite specific but like if if you if you just think of it like the original meaning of the 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 use of the word meme it's just an idea an idea that spreads virally or it's more making the argument that ideas do spread virally just by their nature they need uh, someone to disseminate them in order to spread. Mm-hmm. And you can use kind of viral models to talk about ones that are more successful and how different ideas spread and stuff. Um, but as regards like the specific meme culture, that, that grows from that. That grows from the idea that this is a, you know, a funny joke or a funny concept or uh, an idea with whatever kind of resonance for people. And that causes it to be successful. And then it, you know, interbreeds and is intertextual with, with other memes. Um, if you look at medieval illustrations from from Europe, um, there's like really really funny stuff that appears across a lot of them, um, which is really similar to some of the stuff that we see in modern memes, um, like the prevalence of rabbits and snails as artistic motifs in border illustrations. Why? Um, I just think because it's funny, right? The thing with rabbits is rabbits are always, or very often, portrayed um, fighting people. Mm. Like, like actually, like, killing people with swords and stuff. Um, oh. or, 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 like, in armour, jousting atop knights. Um, and, like, that's just really funny. Like, like a, a rabbit being this kind of, like, horrible, dangerous monster. Um and I think partially it grew. It, it might grow out of them being pests that would break into monks' gardens and eat their eat their crops or eat their herbs or whatever. And the same thing for snails. Snails, who are sort of portrayed as monstrous sometimes, um, are a pest in a garden. And I, it's partially a kind of a comedy thing, and partially them venting their frustrations about their day to day experience of these animals. I have a somewhat gruesome snail-related anecdote from my life that I'd like to insert here, and then we can get back to talking Let's about the culture. Let's hear it. <laughs> so my my father was a uh, a enthusiastic amateur gardener, mm-hmm. um, but he refused to use uh, chemicals in the garden to deal with pests and stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe this is a function of like the the biome we live in or whatever but say snails are like particularly rampant back home like they're everywhere like there'd be times where you'd like you would arrive home late at night or whatever and there's like a horde of them like i'm talking maybe 30 maybe snails just crawling up a wall like like they they don't come in isolated uh, events these snails they they came like in packs and so his his for for dealing with uh with the snails was to just like get a scissors and like to individually go in the garden every night and just chop them in half and so there'd be oh my god i know it's really gory and in the mornings you just like come out to go to school or whatever and like the garden is just littered with corpses 
and like because he's you know halved what each, the hell? because he's halved each snail and like he just let them fall where they fall or whatever um and because he's halved each snail so that doubles the number of like kind of visible objects visible snail like objects so you'd go into the garden and there'd be like a hundred <laughs> bits of snail just littered everywhere. or vslos as we call them in the business <laughs> Exactly, and then, like I, I'm imagining, birds or something would like try to pick at them, and some of them would like yeah. drop them mid-flight. So they'd be scattered on the patio as well. And he was totally fine with this. And like he was a man that was very into his like he's you know, he's German, like he's very into things being done proper and things looking neat and and you know everything being the way it should be. And then yet he was completely okay with like you know the snail apocalypse that happened every night. It was bizarre. It's very strange. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that's that's a peculiar, a, a peculiar approach to the problem, uh, to, to my mind. <laughs> Just get some hedgehogs. Just get some hedgehogs to live in the garden. I mean, that's yeah, that would be a very organic way of doing it, and it's it's so yeah. labor And also, intensive. then you have hedgehogs, which are super cute. Man, hedgehogs are super cute, but like, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been startled by a hedgehog at night. They're terrifying. If you can see them in broad daylight and you can see their cute little faces and things like that, then it's fine. But when you're just like, uh, just like, I remember I used to go out the back of my house to smoke at night and I, there you would see nothing, obviously, because it was dark. And then you'd be there having a cigarette and then this just like this, this ball that just like scuttles towards you real quick. And like the, the, the like patio light or whatever will like catch on its little, uh, what are they called? Spikes. Uh, and they kind of shine a little bit like it's very creepy and then once your brain registers as a hedgehog everything's fine but before your brain registered that you're kind of like this is how I end this is it this is how I die it's no good I, I can't say I've I've ever had um, the experience of being frightened by a hedgehog Edgar as we've established many years ago I am terrified of everything so it's completely fitting with my character <laughs> Um, but yeah, the mean culture thing, right? Um, I was going to ask you, and you, you literally just covered it, like, the the, the idea of meme culture, uh, I always thought that it, it cannot really be intrinsic to, like, modern life, because it is just the idea of, like, an idea that everyone can kind of get behind, and then it's propagated. Yeah. So I, I was thinking, I was going to ask you, like, do you know of memes in Rome, for example? Because you can imagine, like, the same thing, like, Romans must there must be some ideas that all Romans could identify with and they'd be spread through like pamphlets or whatever, which is essentially just meme culture as well. Yeah, graffiti. Graffiti, yeah, graffiti is a form of, of, of meme culture, yeah, for sure. Well, like, th- that was that was a big thing in Rome. Um, graffiti was, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think what's notable about the way we have it in our culture is just that we consume so much media and... Um, and we have so much kind of uh, discourse and so much content and interaction with other people, like basically constantly, as long as we're awake for a lot of people. Um, mm. So the density of information that we exchange is very, very high. So mm. ideas will mutate and spread faster over the course of like a given period of time. Than, than they would in older, less information-dense societies. Um, sure. Now, I don't, know if, if, I don't know if there's a way to compare a, how much an idea mutates um, according to the amount of information that is consumed. 
and may, maybe we are notable in that sense also. Uh, I don't know. But I, I think that's the, the, the particular thing that is, is notable about what we have, is that we just consume and exchange so much information that it's just, it's, it's really fertile for memes to propagate and mutate. Yeah, and under that sort of way of looking at things, I would say that meme culture, as we currently experience it, I would say that it's it's almost like a yes for all cultures as well. Once they reach like a certain level of technological advancement that allows them to exchange ideas so quickly, um, so I would mm-hmm. not be surprised if we landed on like I don't know Proxima Centauri. Is that a planet or a star? Proxima Centauri A. Pretty sure it's a star. <laughs> yeah, Proxima Centauri A. We land on that planet, and there's a whole hot here, <laughs> and, and there's a whole bunch of people just like. Uh, just yeah, just sharing like these weird esoteric postmodern memes. I think that it almost feels like that's a natural uh, evolution of what it is mm. to spread ideas. You know, so I'm a, I'm a hard yes on meme culture would exist, and I'm a hard yes that meme culture would kind of exist as it as it is currently, uh, given the correct technological level. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think anything that would communicate as intently as we do for so any society or any species that's as social as we are um and is capable of the same kind of abstraction and has concepts of of humor then yeah i i think something extremely similar would or certainly analogous would would arise i wonder what the earliest meme culture would look like like did like people in the stone age have meme culture and what did that look at because if we look at it as being the flip side of what it currently is uh you know like rapid mutation rapid uh, spreading very quickly those things would not occur it would be like very slow spread and not prone to mutations there perhaps um so like i don't know is there like a couple of hegemonic like memes that exist for stone age people That'd be really interesting because there's got to be like if they're a thinking group, like you said, it's capable of humor and things like that. Mm. They have, I would imagine, they have to evolve. It'd be really interesting to think about like what, how that culture would exist way back then. Um, like, you know, we have we have jokes from Mesopotamia. Um, do we? Yeah. Wow! Can you recite said joke? Um. Not in the original language. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid my Akkadian pronunciation is a bit <laughs> is a bit um, dodgy. Um, why, why did the bushel of corn cross the road? That's how it starts. Um, okay, now I, I'm not going to stake anything on this claim, but I have seen this a few times, so it's an idea that's out there. Um, it may be faulty, but. It's said that the the oldest joke we know is from 1900 BC. Whoa. Yeah. Um, And the joke goes, Something which has never occurred since time immemorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. (laughs) I love that. It's just poop jokes. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. As far back as we can go in the history of humor, people thought farts were funny. Man, that is that is great. 
That is great. I, I, it's it's a pity it's it's as verbose as it is because that would have made a very good podcast title. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess there, like I'm sure you could find you could make an argument that common elements found among early religions in similar regions. That's a, an example of like a mimetic spread of an idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I'm yeah. So we're both hard yes on this question. Yeah, I think so. Devon Beans is meme culture done? Question mark? Question mark? <laughs> I think so. Cool. All right. What have you got? Anything to follow up from uh, the Reddit from last show? Someone did ask me uh, a very good question. Um that I don't really have a good answer for right now, and I will have to think about this, but um, on the sub, uh, Omni314 said, uh, a question for Bill. You've mentioned about the good guys in Harry Potter and Star Wars should be better at war, and they shouldn't rely on teenagers and hope. What does this better at war look like? Could you perhaps point to some works that show a good example of this? Um <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I can. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, not relying on teenagers and hope would be a good start, though. And, you know, having sensible strategies and, you know, logistics and things. And not just, not just wing and prayer approach to stopping the bad guy. Um, yeah. Do, do you, can you think of an example of good at war in blockbusters recent blockbusters Mm, recent blockbusters or maybe not even recent but just in film like is there an example of like the the anti-star wars an example where you're like yeah you know what that was really good at war but it's still set in the same sort of like it's obviously not a war movie like it's in the same sort of vibe but they just did war better um the hunger games maybe like the the rebellion fight a reasonably good sensible war. Hmm. Yeah, that's And yeah. they don't they don't they don't rely on on like silly things. Um now they do there are kind of some war crimes committed on both sides, which is part of the plot. Um obviously I'm not in favor of war crimes. Um and they, I mean, they nod towards this kind of, this idea of, you know, Teenagers and Hope in in the Hunger Games by, like, making Katniss this figurehead. But that's a mm. very, that's an in-universe thing. It's not actually how they're fighting the war. It's, it's like, she's used as a propaganda symbol because this is an effective narrative. Um, You know, have, having a figurehead like that is an effective narrative, but that's not actually how they, how they do it. Yeah, that's a good example, man. What do you think of Ender's Game, the way war is portrayed there? Um, I haven't seen it. I did read it. Um, because that's a similar kind of thing. Like, your man is a, a, a young lad. He's a teenager, boy or whatever. And yep. they're they're doing proper spoilers. war war. Uh, spoilers. Yes. Sorry, spoilers for Ender's Game. Um, but they're doing proper war war there. And uh, at least when I read it, at the very end, you're kind of like... I know, it feels very kind of real, you know? Government conspiracy, cover-up type thing. And there's a lot that's silly in that book, but it's, I did enjoy it. Yeah, and it's, and it's, but it seems like, a, like the way it's presented in that book, it seems like a believable strategy 
uh, that the military might undertake, given given the way the book sets itself out. You know, like I wasn't yeah, at the end sure. of the book. I yeah, at the end of the book, I wasn't feeling like well, that was the dumbest thing ever. I was like, that makes total sense in this universe. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, it was it was a good reveal, and I didn't see it coming. Yes, agree, hard agree. Um, yeah, well, will you let us know if if you come up with other examples of good at war or formalize your ideas into a proper like thesis? I certainly will. Certainly will. Uh, anything else in the subreddit? No, I think that's everything. People seemed to like my world building last month, so thank you for that, guys. Um. Every other month, I was happy with it. Just this month was last month was was a rare gem in the rough. Yeah, that sounds fair. <laughs> also, entirely <laughs> believable. Uh, no joke. Um, will we? Okay, great. Will we crack in? Will we do some world building then? Given that everyone loves it, Bill. Uh, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, we're in Ikern again, and we're learning a little bit more this week about uh, the relationship between the Tamar Company and the Greater Abesque culture, and the Hoitan, and what uh, scouting is, and how scouting operates. Cool. Scouts are the fundamental element of our expansion into Hoitan at this time. They are to be given the greatest degree of autonomy that you consider prudent. By living on the land, moving among the locals, and learning intimately their languages and customs, scouts are uniquely positioned to understand how a foreign country and a foreign nation can benefit most greatly from increased trade with the company and how the company might best profit from such a trade. It is not practical to manage every degree of these interactions between scout and native. The greater liberty given to a scout, the more successful their missions will be. Many captains fear that, by giving freedom over much to our scouts, we risk losing them to the native land or native ways. This has been a tenet of the more conservative approach to scouting, advocated for by many within this company, as well as the guiding philosophy of our fellow rivals in Elton and Valden. It is not that this restrained philosophy is without merit. A more directed scout, tied closely to their command or their home depots, will seldom stray, and properly managed can provide many years worth of faithful and effective intelligence on the affairs of foreign lands. Consider, however, the relative gains of our company and those of our rivals in prospecting the Anchess. In the many years since our company's adoption of a more liberal approach to scouting, Tamari holdings in that land have risen at a rate far greater than any other Abeski company. Thus, its efficacy in the field can be considered proven. But why is this the case, and why should we consider our success in Anchess more than a fortunate coup? Our scouts are trained to an exceedingly high standard, and none are let loose upon a land that do not have a gift for self-sufficiency, survival, and the gathering of intelligence. They are each an impressive individual, and many owe a significant debt, whether fiscal or sentimental, to the company. 
This debt and an understanding of the benefits of what we as a company can offer to foreign nations makes them effective ambassadors for our mission, without them being constrained by the rigours of formal diplomacy. They themselves are often best suited to determine what course of action to take and which contacts to cultivate, and to do so immediately, waiting days for such orders to be communicated to a superior officer who is less intimately familiar with the environment often results in the loss of fruitful opportunities. It is true that, following our doctrine, many more scouts leave their posts or attempt to settle among their host nations. This is the chief argument made by those favouring a stricter variety of scouting. However, even those scouts who abandon their careers may very often act to the furtherance of our goals. Scouts who turn native frequently submit the greatest and most insightful intelligence before they abandon the company, due no doubt to their deep attraction to the host nation. Further, they have a destabilizing effect on the inhabitants and society they wish to integrate into. Their very presence either softens a nation attitude towards the Abeski, allowing us to integrate our business more easily, or it creates a discord and mistrust which will often lead to violence, allowing us a more overt approach to concentrating and enforcing our commercial interests. Sorend Techletsky, Commercial Coordinator, Hoytan First Depot. Very cool. I, I'm 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 a little bit conflicted about this this work because uh, there's loads of this where I think uh, like I really agree philosophy wise with what's going on here, but like obviously the Tamara Company is a a terrible institution. So uh, you've you've <laughs> you've you've written something intriguing. Uh, so I like um, talk to me a little about the background uh, before I get into questions. So yeah, uh, back in February, I wrote. Um, a diary entry from Levint to Alhen, who uh, was writing about abandoning his career as a Tamar Company scout. And here we see a little bit about the uh, command structure and the the owners of the Tamar Company and their philosophy and doctrine towards scouting and, and how it operates and how they wish it to operate. So I, I realise this is rarely ever the case, but it's worth asking again. Um, the mm-hmm. structure you've outlined here, the sort of corporate thinking, is it based on any real-world analogue, or again, are you just making this up? Uh, not not directly, but I, I was kind of thinking about how in the history of the United States, for example, the the Indian agents, as they were called, were nominally supposed to be... I mean... Overtly, people would say that they were for the the benefit of the of the natives, but they actually worked to further the, the United States interests, like the white supremacy and the the eradication of the the native culture in favor of the imported white European culture. And it would work uh, very much. So, would, would it have worked like this? Sort of like there was an advocacy from the higher ups to be all like, yes, integrate. Uh, do or or what's called uh, act autonomously in your integration because I think that's the kind of like the, un- um, the unique thing about this 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 piece that you've written this sort of like high level of autonomy you give kind of the foot soldiers so to speak 
Um, did we see that occur mm-hmm. in in America? I don't know. I don't know enough about how that worked. Okay, cool. Um, but I was kind of I was kind of thinking of like the the sort of you know dances with wolves trope of you know the 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 good white man goes and and is among the natives and i was trying to kind of undercut that a little because you know even if you do that you're still um part of the aggressor Mm -hmm. colonizing culture Mm -hmm. and if if they were smart about it a colonizing culture could exploit that and construct it in such a way that even if you are going to defect that you know they they have structure that benefit or that um, exploits even defection i mean i've always maintained that the the best way uh to bring about oppression is to do a true like empathetic means um like this good white man thing so if you're if you're like the 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 company here and like as you outlined in your last paragraph where you want to destabilize things the best thing you can do is not you know wage overt warfare the best thing you can do is try and like assimilate and destroy it from within um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. If they, if they were smart about things, hundred percent, they would they would go the more covert, overtly caring route. But then, obviously, that's a kind of like Trojan horse, um, sort of thing. Um, which again, I find I find very interesting. We're kind of skipping about now, but I find that very interesting about your uh, your last paragraph, where you know the the speaker says, "Well, look, sure, even if given the foot soldiers' autonomy is a bad thing, actually." It works out well in the end because they destabilize the culture and make us seem really nice and good and stuff. And I was like, "Oh, that's very dark. It's very good." Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing the thing where I was like, I feel conflicted because I agree with the Tamara Company here. The idea of autonomy, though, I I that 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 rings very true to me because like I'm constantly going on about how um, in corporate structures, uh, the more autonomy you give people and the less micromanaged those people are the more uh, benefits you can get. Um, so it's mm-hmm. it's very weird to have the smart company kind of enact the sort of philosophy I call for in corporate structures uh, and then having to be like, but I don't actually like the smart company. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they figured out an effective like management uh, technique. They're just using it for evil. Exactly, exactly. I admire the management technique. I do not admire the evil. Evil is no good. Yeah. Um, the You approve of the means, not of the end. Exactly. That's a very nice way of putting it. Um, the Come here, tell me. Tell me about... Because uh, your first first couple of points we've kind of covered here, uh, the management thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about Elton and Valden. Um, new cities, anything, any sort of flavor text regarding those? Uh, no, they're just other companies. Are the fellow rivals in Elton and Valden? It makes it sound like they're they're, they're places, and the, the other companies exist in those places. No, they're companies. Okay, all right. So they're just like other Tamar. Yeah. Um, uh, size relative to Tamar company? Are they smaller? Are they equivalent? Who's Amazon and who's um, Google here? <laughs> they're older, um, and they they have different geographical focuses, like uh. Tamar are very powerful in, oh, what's the first place I wrote about? Mearsphere. Mearsphere. God, it brings back memories. Yes. That's mad. I think, I think Mearsphere is the one I'm thinking of. Um, uh, but like they, they all have, they all have like places in, in most of the major cities. It's just that 
to, um, they, they have different like focuses and stuff. Yeah, so they're they're rival companies essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, I I like the way your scouts are kind of like they give me images of a cross between bear grills and some pencil pushing diplomat, which I think is a very fun <laughs> fun image. So uh, I I think kind of unique. Like I don't I haven't really seen. You don't really read well, often that like you know ambassadors also need to have self sufficiency and survival training. Like that's pretty. That's a cool little mix you got going there. What's the what's the 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 pencil pusher part of it? Uh, the ambassador part. Like so, I can imagine them in my head. I'm imagining these scouts, you know, living on the land, rugged, uh, mm-hmm. bear grills, like, and then they show up somewhere, and they're but they're also very erudite and have a a, a good interpersonal skill set. And, uh, yeah, are good at communicating, very well-spoken, that kind of thing. That's the pencil pusher. Like, yeah, I imagine the dude, it's almost like they, they get rid of their camo and they don don a nice suit and tie and then approach the the, the hoitad <laughs> and then speak very eloquently. So uh, I don't know if that's actually the case, but that's what I'm thinking in my head. Obviously not cool. literally donning a suit, but like metaphorically donning the suit. Yeah, yeah. But they have these two different roles they inhabit. Exactly, yeah. And I think they're two kind of like contradictory sort of roles, and I think that's kind of fun. Um, is there a lot of scouts out there, or are these kind of like a very small, skilled group of people? Um, There would be a fair few, yeah. Okay, so like a dime a dozen? Not not like a dime a dozen. Like, it's not a, it's not a, like, everyone who, who signs up goes and becomes a scout, but it wouldn't be like, it's not like a super elite thing either. Okay. Um, you mentioned, uh, there's a line here, they they are each an impressive individual and many owe a significant debt, whether fiscal or sentimental, to the company. The That is dark and that's great. And I love how the company leans on that to exploit them. Um, but fiscal is pretty obvious. Sentimental, are we talking almost like sports ball here? As in like Scout, Edgar Scout, really likes the Tamar Company because that was the company that has the most influence in his hometown. And he has like tribal loyalty to it. Um, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but very possibly. Hmm, what were you thinking? Um, just m- more that they, they take people out of poverty and, and give them education. And they they provide them an exit from the, their, their unpleasant living circumstances. So you take a guy from who lives in the slums around a tower in Lansk, and, and you give him a training, and you give him status, and... You give him something to do in the world, and then he's loyal to you for doing that. I mean, that's not that far removed from what I was thinking. Uh, lots of you can say the thing. Lots of thing, it's, You can say the same thing about lots of sports ball things, as in, like you know, they they have your like, youth outreach and provide facilities. Sure, for, you know, so it's 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 not far that far removed. I again, I like the. But in in this case, it's it's more like giving them an actual job rather than just being like. I support Man United because I'm from Manchester. Exactly, yeah. Um, or whatever, yeah. The, uh, yeah, again, I like the sort of, like, layers here. Uh, like, just like with the ambassadors. It's not just, like, rugged hills man and pencil pusher. They're, like, both. I really like that there's, like, this these different elements that are uh, at play in terms of coercing, whether overtly or covertly, these ambassadors. I think that's really cool. Thank you. Um, I suppose the only other thing that I have to say about it is that uh, is there the people in the company who are more conservative and take a more mm-hmm. conservative approach? Um, do they have a leg to stand on at all? Because this seems like a really solid rebuttal of the conservative approach. What's the 
what would be what would a conservative person say to counter this? Um, well, I think if you look at the end of the the fourth paragraph there, um, the uh, Sutherland asks, "Why should we consider our successes in Anchess more than a fortunate coup?" Mm. Uh, he never actually comes back to that point. Oh, so you think that the 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 other faction would lean heavily that it's just good fortune? Yeah, like he's 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 got an agenda here in in pushing this more liberal approach to 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 scouting, um, for with greater autonomy, um, and he is trying to be rhetorically effective here, which involves the use of some example and and reference. Mm. But he he is being more rhetorical than he is being necessarily strict. He doesn't actually explain in any way why Anches isn't just um, good luck or that there might be other reasons why the Tamar Company was successful there other than scouting. Well, so here's the thing. Um, this liberal approach to scouting, has this been the status quo or is this a recent development in their manoeuvres in the area? Um... The Tamar Company have practiced it for a while, but other companies um, are are more conservative. And the Tamar Company would be considered one of the more proficient outfits. Um. Yeah. It's. I, I can't remember if I said this already. It's. It's a bit younger. Um. It's. It's more recently established, and it has grown faster than the others. Right, but so could, but could a conservative person go, well, look at the Elton, for example. They take a very conservative approach and they are doing great. Maybe not as amazing as us, but we're class, you know. But it, So I suppose, sorry, to put that into a nice one-liner, um, is there a counter-organization uh, uh, to Tamar that employ more conservative measures that are, could be considered um, successful? Yeah, the, the, the other two companies, the Elton and the Valden, you could you could just say I mean like they're they're doing they're doing great work, and they have other successes in other fields, and they have been successful for a very long time, with a different approach. Okay, so so the line thus its efficiency in the field uh, can be considered proven is that's that's erroneous. That's a that's a point of view. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is that is uh, overstating the case. And so, is this is this person Zorind? Are they pushing this agenda because they they believe in this, uh, and they truly believe like this this uh, growth in the Tamar Company has been because of this, or is there something else here? Like, wh- why would a person, why would an upper management person want to uh, proceed more liberally? I mean, I, I guess Zorind thinks it is more effective. Yeah, he, so he it genuinely is, thinks. Yeah, this, this is, it is a genuine. It is a genuine um, thing. This is there isn't some sort of like under undercurrent thing going on here. Uh, I wouldn't imagine so. No. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, and I, I like he may well be aware that he is not being like entirely honest in the argument he's making, but he wants to make the argument. He, he's not trying to be empirical or logical here. He wants to make this argument because he thinks he's right. Uh, sorry, slightly unrelated here. Um, are there groups like abolishment groups in oh, what's the in Icairn? That's probably the wrong word to use. Icairn's the entire planet. The Abesque, the Anches. What do we call this region? Abolishment of what? Like, uh, sorry, yeah, go back. Uh, abolishment of these sort of like uh, capitalist colonial things. Are there groups that are kind of 
uh, in the region that like advocate against these companies and like uh, try to undermine them. Mm, yeah, well, remember what happened in Lansk. The, the yeah, the riot. But like, did we did we note any uh, specific groups, um, or did, was it just a, a, a mob? I can't remember. Was it just a kind of mob fed up with things, so things got heated? Um, there there is a sort of a a labor movement. Yeah. Okay. All right. It'd be interesting to hear. Remember, remember there was that agitator that got arrested. Um, who is yeah. a notable kind of yeah. labor agitator from another city? That's fair, yeah. Yeah, sorry, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, man, cool. I enjoyed. Thank you. Uh, it's 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 not cool that you maybe sympathize with a with a terrible institution, but you know, <laughs> good that's ri- on you. <laughs> good writing is provocative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you got any any uh, closing things? Anything I've missed? The usual sort of thing. Uh, no, I, I wanted to bring up that thing about the kind of sort of dishonesty within the argument um, and the, the, the point that was brought up but then abandoned. Um, so I think we've I think we've pretty much covered it all. I consider myself to be to not be a very skilled interviewer uh, and to okay. not be in general very good at asking questions. So it always fills me with great joy when I'm like, do you have anything else to cover? And you're kind of like, you, you got at the core thing I wanted to say. That makes me feel really good because that's, mm-hmm. I think that the people who are really skilled at interviewing will ask, will just like inherently ask the important questions. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's always fun when you're like, no, that's it, Edgar, you covered it. I'm like, yes, go ahead. <laughs> 10 points for Gryffindor. <laughs> and that makes me feel good that I have communicated it well as well. So... Uh, here, Pat's listen, on the back for both of us. Listen, pal. Though, if 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 I fail to ask you questions, don't take that as you failing to communicate. Take that as me failing to ask questions. Like that. That needs to be the <laughs> assumption going forward here, because okay. otherwise, yeah, no good. Um, but yes, very good as always. Thoroughly enjoyed. Very complex and in a small amount of text as well. Wonderful. Hmm. Thank you very much, Edgar. Okay, will we will we move on to some uh, some uh, Edgar follow up? Some Edgar building. A gilling. Sure thing. Uh, so I uh, just released a video. Uh, myself and Bibliridian um, uh, collaborated together to work on Word Order Part 2. Free Word Order in OA. Uh, links are in the show notes. You can go check it out. Um, and I thought I'd talk a little bit about here. Uh, as always, did you, have you watched it? Do you have anything that you want to pose to me before I uh, I give my opinions about things? Um... Yes, I have watched it. And yes, you have um, questions. <laughs> I have I have one question and one uh, cool point. Oh, yeah, go for it. Um, I didn't understand the difference between topic and focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to, welcome to a common misunderstanding. Uh, the way... <sighs> the way I think about it, this could be erroneous. I think of it kind of two ways. Uh, one is like literally almost like an emphasis sort of thing like the focus is like you saw us in the video where we were going through the focus parts we would like emphasize uh like vocally just emphasize the focus i kind of think of focus being like that like almost as if it's written down it's just italicized text to draw attention to a thing uh that's one way of looking at it. and another mm-hmm. way of looking at it this is the bit where i could be erroneous because i'm speaking off the cuff is topic stuff can very often be omitted 
uh, true to use of pronouns and things like that. Uh, whereas I think focus stuff won't be. Uh, so like, you know, if you're having a conversation about a ship, uh, very quickly into the conversation, you can begin replacing the word the ship with it. Like, oh, it was great. It was, it was, it's, its hull was magnificent. That replacing of the topic, the ship with its, uh, doesn't really occur in focus. The focus there would be kind of like the hull. You're drawing attention to the thing. So there's that that I kind of, in my head, uh, think distinguishes those two things. Um, again, could be erroneous, and it is a super co- uh, difficult thing for English speakers to uh, to get their heads around because English just doesn't do topic-focused stuff at all. Yeah, and it's... Thus, also hard to communicate in English. It's very hard to communicate in English. Uh, yes, the, the the topicness not so much. Actually, I just I I'm in the process of releasing the Q and A video, and I addressed some like uh, people uh, proposed various different syntaxes to make English uh, topic uh, prominent, and those are pretty easy to achieve. They're very stylized, but they're very easy uh, to achieve. Focus stuff way harder to achieve. In to communicate using English, um, so yeah, it's a trippy one, man. It's a trippy one, and you're not the only one who didn't understand it. Good. Yeah. <laughs> does, does did my explanation there make any sense with the the omission thing? Um, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> the the emphasis one less so because they both just sound like emphasis to me. The way it was explained in the video, it just sounds like topic is when you emphasize it. And focus is when you emphasize it. But, and I didn't understand what the different emphases were. But again, think about it like if you're having a conversation about a ship, like you'd emphasize that the conversation is about the ship. That would be the topic thing. And then going on in the conversation, you may wish to further emphasize, uh, like sub-emphasize almost different parts about the ship, if you're talking about it, but still keep the general conversation about the ship. So there's kind of like, it's like a layered okay. emphasis levels, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, I think so. Mm. Uh, I could be wrong. If anyone does speak a topic-prominent language that has, like, focus positions and things like that, let us know. Um, And particularly, because I'm assuming if you're going to answer this call to action, you're also going to be okay with English. Uh, So it'll be really interesting to see how you think about your uh, focus stuff through English. Like, that would be very, very interesting Mm. to to find out. So let let me know in, in the subreddit. That'd be cool. Do you know what's a topic prominent language? Uh, no, yes, maybe. Oa? Hungarian. Hungarian. Hungarian, man. I don't know much about Hungarian. I hear it's a nightmare. Um, yeah, it's got really, I think it's got very free word order. Mm-hmm. And it, it does something like that, that the, the emphasis in the sentence is determined by the structure of the mm-hmm. sentence. It's like, you, like the word immediately before the verb or something like that, is the one that you want to draw attention to in the sentence. Man, if, if Hungarian does do topic focus sort of thing, it might be a good excuse for me to uh, reconnect with uh, an old Hungarian friend from college and to discuss this, because I haven't talked to that guy in years, and he was, he was, a, he was a solid chap. That might, be, that might be a good thing that to do. That guy's awesome. That guy is awesome. <laughs> I saw him a little while ago on stage. Did you? You saw him on stage. Does he? Uh, yeah. Is he? Has he gone yeah. back to the dreads, or is he still rocking the uh, the nine to five haircut? Um, long but not dreads. I think long but not dreads. He, oh man, he was great crack. Mm. I remember. I remember. I had dreads. <laughs> I got dreads one summer. Uh, before was it before second year? Maybe 
I think it was before second year of college. I think so. And I was kind of mad stoked to be like the one guy who has dreads in college, like the one kind of like out there quirky person. Cause I was really into that stuff back then and it's gross and I don't like it now, but I was mad stoked and I show up and I go out the back of college to have a cigarette. And there is that Hungarian man with a much better head of dreads than me. And I was like, well, crap, <laughs> my moment of uniqueness lasted like from the, from the front door to the back of the college. And that was it. And I was like, I'm done. I'm out. And there was, and there was, there really, there uh, really genuinely was, I had to fight back this sort of like irrational, like anger at the man. Like I didn't, and I didn't know him at all. He had just, he had just moved into college um, from where, did, yeah, he came straight from Hungary, I think. So we had no connection at all. And I was just irrationally angry at him. And then like begrudgingly, I would talk to him. And then I, after a while, I was kind of like, oh, he's actually very, very nice. He's a lovely chap. And we became great friends. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I was such a dick back then. It was awful. <laughs> Oh dear! But yeah, I must talk to him. I must talk to him uh, about about uh, Hungarian because again, he would be a person because he's fluent in English who would be able to um, talk to me about it from a native perspective. That would be pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was your your question. What is your cool point? Uh, the the Hungarian thing I just said. <laughs> oh right. Oh, so we, we okay. just Hungarian has 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 a cool topic structure. <laughs> yeah, Hungarian in general is meant to be a very cool language. Like I always, uh, the way I always think about it is that like all European languages are kind of meh, except for Finnish, Basque, and Hungarian. Like those are the ones that people are always like, ooh, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, th- so th- that was your question and your point. The the thing that I want to bring up and just I don't know, just like have a muse about for a little bit, um, and it's only margin related to video. Was people in comments were were uh, slagging my use of the bilabial trill, the bra sound, um, and people mm-hmm. were like, "Oh, it's really ugly. It's a disgusting sound." And then other people were calling other people racist for calling the sound. Uh, disgusting and it was just, just this, <laughs> this minor little flame war occurred and this is a very god bless the internet god bless the internet is right um and it's a very weird thing to me to think of sounds as being ugly and i, I wanted to know like do you think of things that way because it's, it's akin to going oh the note d is an ugly note it's like that's inherently meaningless like the note d in relation to other notes, maybe ugly or beautiful. And even that is very subjective. So like I think of like um, phonics as being the same thing. Like a sound is either ugly or not, given its context and not just inherently so. Do you think about sounds like that? Um, I think I'd agree with you. Yeah, the idea that something is has aesthetic value without any context is very strange. Yeah, it's, um, it's really weird. And like, and it's by extension, like people are like, what's your favorite sound? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like the not enough information cannot answer questions. There's like, there's, it's like, what's your favorite, like combinations of sounds or things like that? Uh, yeah. it's, it's a slightly better. I, I can. Sorry, go on. I, I can, I can perceive of having a favorite sound, but just, just like not in an aesthetic sense. It's just like, it's cool. Or, you know, it's an unusual one or, you know, you've got some kind of connection to it because of, you know, it's in a language you like or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But just like it's the most beautiful sound is 
I mean, that's weird to me. It is weird. Um, like I was, I was, I still am like irrationally fond of the rolled ore because I couldn't do it for a mm-hmm. while, and nor can I do it very well now. Uh, but so I always hear that, and it always sounds a little bit magical because I can't produce it. Um, like that's about the extent as far as I'm going to go with like assigning beauty to sounds. <laughs> but like to be honest, like the bilabial trill is ugly. It's like what? That makes no sense. Oh, it's bad. But yeah. it, it, it is. The, the, this is the thing, though. Uh, I have seen throughout making these videos that it really is a case. Any time, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign racism here, which is not a thing I am quick to do. But uh, there really is a trend where the minute you say something that sounds African-ish, or at least people's hyper-real ideas of what an African language might sound like. Initial M's, for exam- mm. example, that bilabial trill, um, uh, various other cons- constructs that sound African. You, invariably, man, there's always someone in comments being like, it sounds primitive. And you're like, good God. Oh, re- reduplication. Oh. I know it's awful. Reduplication was the last time it happened before this where someone goes, because uh, Bibliorydian have made that reduplication structure on verbs and someone goes, it sounds very primitive uh, and then, <laughs> then uh, proceeded to like cite languages that do it, but only cited languages that like that person would class as primitive. Like they didn't cite, for example, Basque, which I believe does reduplication like that because that's a European language and that wouldn't be primitive do you know like it's it's crazy yeah. that, that people that just literally just sounds like just sounds inspire people to 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 make judgment calls on people like it's the most bizarre thing to me I don't understand it and every time I, I see it I'm just like left floored like utterly baffled it's mad I mean it, if if you're if you're calling an existing human language primitive you're almost certainly already being racist exactly yeah it's just it's it's so strange like the word the word primitive the word primitive can be used uh correctly in linguistics to imply like earlier states of a language um mm-hmm. but but to call any one language primitive is just so monumentally erroneous that like so can you say, say that again um, the word primitive can be used uh, correctly when talk about linguistics to talk about like earlier states of a language. Language, so you can say things like uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So like primitive forms of um, of this word, for example, were X. Like you can say that. Um, oh, okay, or like talking about proto languages and precursors and, and stuff. things okay. like that. Yeah, like there no, it's not a judgment call. It's literally like the primal version, the thing that came before. But to to yeah. to, to, to like use the word primitive when comparing existing languages it's just it's just so stupid like it's so stupid <laughs> mm-hmm. oh dear oh dear anyhow uh but yeah so that was the video um in a uh, fun fact about the the bilabial trill um you know paraha i do um so it exists in paraha and apparently they have a voiceless bilabial post-dental trill or something like that i can't remember exactly but there, it, it occurs as as a cluster with with a with a t after a t sound um and it's 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 a feature of their language in in some context and they avoid using it around non-paraha because uh non-paraha make fun of them because it's a silly sound ah jesus apparently <laughs> oh, that's 
that's just that is and that, that, that's not just like you know uh westerners or, or europeans or whatever i think it's like other indigenous people in the region apparently Silly, like silly sound. Like I mean, I, I suppose, but like, yeah, that that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, but again, it's 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 in context. Like if you do a bilabial trill and you're sitting on the floor, you know, mimicking, playing with a little toy car, mimicking the sounds you can make, then yeah, it's, I guess it's silly. But if you say bali, that's not that's not silly. <laughs> do you know? It's like context here. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand this whole this whole world of assigning values to sounds. It's weird. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm. I'm still here. I. I, uh, I yeah, I, me I, either. Wait, hang on. Before you said, I. I absolutely love when you do that. Like, I. I wish I had your confidence to just be okay with silence, because like it, it cuts out, <laughs> and I'm sweating. I literally begin sweating about it. Be like, oh shit, that point wasn't very interesting. If there's a there's a blockage in conversation. This is awful. Whatever will I do? I'll never be able to fix this in the edit. And you just like happily just sit there. I just just wait for me to be like Bill. Bill, Bill, are you there? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's no man. It's confidence, man. It's confidence. Anyway, you were about to about to um, say. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand it either. Really, I don't understand it at all. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, but anyhow, the uh, oh yeah, so the 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 Q and A, the follow up to this video is going up. I would encourage you to uh, going up today. I would encourage you to watch it, Bill. There's an interesting bit of uh, bird conlanging uh, that is uh, in it. Um, that I think you should check out. Awesome. I, I think you'd be. I think you'd be interested in it. Cool. Yeah, I'll check it out. Um, and that with that, I think that's the end of of writers' room. Bank of Artifexia is back in triumphant form, and we're this this month. Uh, we have a correspondence from a wonderful chap called Simon, who comes from Germany. Uh, and Simon has wrote a beautiful uh, four-page long handwritten message in what appears to be like oh. ink, uh, fountain pen. Uh, I'm amazed at people's handwriting when they write in. There's some awesome handwriting going on. Um, Simon did not send money, which is a flagrant disregard for the rules of the Bank of Arifexia, but I'll let it slide because now is a time for <laughs> compassion and caring. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. You don't actually need to send money to write to the Bank of Artifacts. It's cool if you do, uh, but you can just write if you want. I'll, again, I'll leave the address pal uh, link in the show notes uh, and you can you can uh, send it to that address. So anyhow, Simon writes, there's a, a lot that Simon says about like how they enjoy the show and uh, what interests have been sparked by it. I'm not going to read it out in there just for the sake of brevity, but Simon, I... Uh, I have read it, and I also I, I disagree with you that your sentences are too long because you speak German. Your sentences are a okay, pal. Don't worry about it. Um, so first thing they bring up is uh, 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 an idea for non-verbal languages, the perennial topic that Bill set up like a decade ago, um, and they uh, <laughs> they were, they asked about whether we know about the cuttlefish and a phenomenon known as cuttlefish hypnosis. I have not looked this up, but uh, basically, from what they say here, it's uh, it's the idea of color changes to convey uh, means of communication. Um, and they brought up an interesting point here about how uh, I think uh, sometimes when people were doing non um, non verbal languages, they kind of thought about it as being a fully fledged language, just without words. But they bring up a really interesting point about the idea of like 
it necessarily being a limited language to an extent. Um, so like certain color changes would mean like stay away, predator, and other color changes would mean mm-hmm. like move fast, go now. Uh, and I think that's kind of a cool thing to explore. And as mentioned uh, moments ago with the Q and A that's about to go up, the bird singing, uh, the bird conlanging thing uh, that I'm going to talk about follows this certain thing. Uh, there's this bird called the Carolina chickadee, and it it communicates. Uh, its calls uh, have five distinct phonemes, like sound packets, and depending on which f- which of those sound packets they highlight, they mean different things. Like predator, I'm in the air. There is food. So that's an actual IRL thing that occurs. So that's a really cool thing that I think that could be elaborated on in a conline, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. No. D- uh, does that cover? Um, does that cover the embodiment of, or no, embodiment's the wrong word, but like, can, so can they change color? Is it, is it a uniform thing across their body or can they pinpoint it? Well, I, I think we should Google, or I think Bill should Google, cuttlefish hypnosis and have a look. <laughs> cuttlefish are cool as heck. I don't know actually what a cuttlefish is. Is it, does it look a bit like a squid? Um... I think it's more between like a squid and a crab. Oh, jeez, they look terrifying, man. Oh, just the chills. Uh, cuttlefish use hypnosis to hunt. Okay, let's have a listen to this. They've got cool eyes that can see the polarization of light, I think. Oh, very cool. And they've got a bigger a bigger range of, of light perception than we do. Hmm. So what I'm seeing here uh, is that they have broad color changes uh, as opposed to singular pinpoint color changes. Yeah. But again, a fictional well, species mean, a fictional species can do whatever yeah. they want it to do, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, so that was one point, which tied in with the Q&A, which I thought was a very, very good bit of timing. Uh, the other point is For directed sure. primarily at you, Bill. And this is asking, uh, since me? especially Bill seems to enjoy stories told via the diegetic medium, uh, diegetic medium, I was wondering if you know about the SCP universe by any chance. Secure, contain, and protect. Have you ever heard of this, Bill? I have heard of it. I'm not super familiar with it, but I've heard of it. Okay, well, I have not heard about this at all. Uh, so what Simon says here uh, is that it's essentially a uh, like a crowdsourced Wikipedia-style work of like uh, mass fan fiction. Uh, where not fan fiction, but like uh, amateur writing, uh, where the idea is that the, the Wikipedia is a collection of short stories and supernatural phenomenon, uh, and it's told in a very diegetic way, which I think is pretty baller. I think it's a really cool, yeah. cool thing. Um, I, 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 my only reservations with any of these things are always standard. I find sometimes with like uh, crowdsource stuff, the standard of writing tends to vary massively. And also mm-hmm. the idea of everything remaining on on message, on brand, can also vary a lot, which lots of people see as a positive. Yeah. I can kind of see as a negative. Like, I kind of much prefer, uh, like, George Lucas-style prequels where it's like, even if the story's bad, it's like one man's telling of a bad story. It's like this, you're getting it from one mind, whereas sometimes getting it from multiple minds, it can be a bit messy. Um, what do you think, Bill? Um, just on that last point, I like there to be a sort of a guiding thing that, that kind of keeps it consistent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my understanding of SCP is it's, it's essentially a, a wiki and all of the, 
all of the entries are uh, descriptions of artifacts that are held by this SCP group. And it's, yeah, that's how it's diegetic. It's it's a, a report on what the artifact is. And people come up with their own um, and and write about them and they're, then they're, they're, they're saved on, on the wiki. And there's some, there's some cool stuff in it. I, I'm not, I haven't followed any kind of overall themes or any overall story within it, but as little individual bits of writing, some of them are very, very good. Uh, and is this uh, SCP, is this meant to be a, like, uh, a fictional thing on Earth or is it, is it in its own universe? Um, I, no, I'm pretty sure it's on Earth. I'm pretty sure it's okay, on so, Earth. Okay, so it's like a, like a um, governmental body almost. almost. Yeah. Um, did you ever see Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, yes, like vaguely in the background when I was younger. I've never watched any of those films with intent. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know if you remember then, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant has been recovered and you, the last thing you see is it just like being stored in a warehouse somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially the SCP Foundation runs that kind of warehouse where, they, where artifacts are kept hidden and protected from the rest of the world. Or protecting wait, the world from them. Wait, wait, hang on. So is the SP, SCP mentioned in Indiana Jones and this is an no, extension no, of no. it? No, no, oh, no. Okay. That's just an, an illustratory example. That is the right. kind of thing that, that the SCP is meant to be. So speaking of supernatural phenomenon, I, did you hear about the, the government, uh, or the US government rather, uh, releasing all the UFO stuff? I saw they put out a couple of videos, yeah, but I didn't watch them apparently right one of the main triggers for this is your man from blink 182 which is yeah he's he's mad into into ufo stuff isn't he i i listened to him on on joe rogan and like like i don't think he's a real person (laughs) he's just it's so he's so strange like it seems like he is (laughs) that's his that's like he is he is UFO conspiracy theories. That's all he eats, sleeps, breeds. And it's just... And he seems to make, like, like massively, like, outlandish claims about... There was one thing. He said he founded a company and the company are in the process of rele- releasing, like, anti-grav uh, uh, technology that they've got from bits of UFO debris or some crap like that. And it's like, what? You're making these claims that cannot be substantiated. Like, what? what is this like? It's mental. And then yeah, I read it's, it's, that... It's bizarre. It's crazy. And then I read that he's actually, like, done something, like, not just, like, telling fanciful stories. He actually got the government to, to release stuff. And it's like, what's going on? Like, the world has been turned upside down, Bill. It's so strange. It's super weird. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. Um... I haven't watched. It. I'm not. I'm not that interested in. It. Like I, I don't consider it. My my expectation that it will be interesting is so low that I haven't watched it. Yeah, I I've seen some of the things. It's like it. It's fine. Like I I'm not like oh my god the aliens are taking over. Like that's not the conclusion I draw from these things. Um, yeah. You anyways conspiracies to do with UFOs are like the most boring conspiracies I find. I'm there's better conspiracies to be concerned your time about the the alien ones are just yeah they're so easily explained by tech, you know like oh I saw a thing or even when like you know fighter pilots say that they're on training maneuvers and they see some unidentified thing like Occam's razor here 
it can just be advanced tech that you haven't been made aware of yet, as opposed to like aliens have come from outer space. You know, it's just so yeah. it's so easily described the way that it's a boring conspiracy to me. But also, like, I mean, that is literally just what a UFO is. It's anything unidentified. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't mean alien. <laughs> right, and everyone, everyone just always makes the leap to alien, and it's, it's almost, yeah. that almost seems more boring. Like, so, so if, you, if, you, if you're a fighter pilot and you see some unidentified flying object, like, it's, surely it's more interesting to create conspiracy theories about, like, the Russian government, right? And to, like, play it into real-world politics. But to just go, like, it's an alien, kind of, like, that's end of discussion. It's like, well, okay, great. Like, yeah. nothing else to talk about here. Nothing interesting to talk about. Uh, from, like, an, from a fiction narrative point of view, it's weak pulling the alien card, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it lends itself to laziness. It can be good, but it, it's, it's not good in and of itself. And it can yes. be done, it, you can do bad stuff with it very easily. My... My my favorite conspiracy theory is the flat earth thing. I I have a saw. I don't know. Do you like conspiracy theories, Bill? Like not in the sense that believe them. Do you are you do you find yourself drawn to like the fictional aspect of them at all? Not as much as I used to. I used to, um, but I don't know. the The culture around conspiracy theories has gotten increasingly fashy um, mm. since I since I became an adult. I, I remember like 10 years ago, I felt that they leaned left more than they did now, than they do now. Um, maybe that was oh. just my ignorance or, and I wasn't noticing things. Um, but they're like, they're super fashy nowadays. And that just makes me kind of sad and not, not want to engage with it too much. Um, I can't say that that's the experience. So I consume a lot of conspiracy content cause it's kind of my guilty pleasure. I shouldn't like it, but I really, I really like the storytelling aspect of it uh, because it's, it's yeah. just it's it's basically like like human fan fiction, fan fiction, IRL fan fiction, which is great. I love it. Yeah. Um, Fanfic of reality, f- exactly. It's a fan fiction of reality, um, and by their very nature, conspiracy theories are like like they need to be interesting in a way if they're to gain any sort of traction. Um, so the, mm-hmm. the things I consume a lot of, like I consume an awful lot of flat earth content because I find that to be. Just, I think there's something very compellingly interesting about this thing that has arisen recently. I don't get a sense of fashiness uh, in that sphere. I get a sense of, you know, uh, religiosity and a sense of like, definitely a sense of conservatism. But I don't, I don't get a sense of, of, of a fascism there at all. So uh, is this a thing that maybe is sequestered that like different areas draw uh, radically different people? Yeah, maybe maybe it's not a thing particularly in in flat earthism, but like just so often, it it comes down to like shadowy cabals and globalist agendas, and very very often that's just dog whistle for Jews. Yeah, yeah, and no, that, that, that's fair. like, yeah, I, I guess, I, the... and, and I just I don't want to engage with that much. Yeah, that's fair. I guess the shadowy cabal thing that occurs in with flat earthism is NASA. I guess that's where they they usually tend to just treat NASA as being the shadowy cabal, which I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't really see that as a dog whistle. I see that more as kind of like an anti, just an anti-government stance, like the government is taking over and yeah. clouding our judgment. You know. Um, yeah, I uh, know. I'll and, just trust conspiracy theorists to manage to to shoehorn anti-Semitism into nearly everything. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's there. There definitely are like there, there definitely are like real hateful conspiracy theories, hundred percent. And then there's yeah. like the fun wacky ones, and I, I tend to like the fun wacky. Like again, the flat heart one, I think, is a real fun wacky one. Like it has no yeah. consequence at all. Like you know, like the the common rebuttal is like, why would anyone lie about the shape of the earth? And that's kind of kind of like underpins the wackiness of it. And I just, I just, I absolutely love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. And I feel really bad though because like I watch it on YouTube like a lot, and I'm always kind of like, I am giving <laughs> my attention to this. Like, like I am telling the algorithm that this is a thing that I like, and I feel kind of bad about that in a weird way, or like I'm. I'm potentially making someone's career, you know, being a, making them a professional flat earther with my attention. So there's this weird tug in me where I'm like, I find this, these stories really compelling, but I also don't want to support them. And it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's the definition of a guilty pleasure, hundred um, percent. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I like, I like kind of old, old school ones, as I was saying, like the Illuminatus trilogy and stuff. That's kind of fun. Um, to go back to like the seventies, uh, and yeah, conspiratorial things in media, I I, I can enjoy, um, and th- yeah, there's there's an aesthetic appeal to 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 conspiracy theories. Certainly, just I haven't been into them that much in the recent years. I mean, your tack, your your methodology here is clearly the correct methodology because you don't want to be me who just consumes too much of this crap, uh, knowing that it's crap. <laughs> So bad, um, but but yeah. So anyway, Simon, Simon, um, I was completely unaware of the SCP Secure Contain Protect. Um, I'll go check it out. Links will be in the show notes for other people to go check it out. It sounds fun. It sounds fun. Um, and thank you for uh, thank you for writing in as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's as always. It's amazing to get letters from all over the world sent in. Like, it's a really unique position to be in. And uh, I, we are really grateful that people will take the time to do so. It's uh, it's really cool. Yeah, thank you very much, Simon. Schönen Dank. Uh, schönen Dank. So the, yeah, so will we, uh, will we, will we wrap it up there? I don't, I don't have really much else I to think add. we can wrap it up there. Cool. Uh, that's, that's it for me. Uh, as always, Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thank you for supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, Patreon links in the show notes if you want to go do that, uh, and also pick up some merch. I am going to make goose-related merch at some stage, so watch this space. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, and until next time, Edgar out. Edgar out. <laughs>